0: Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. The journalist Matt Taibbi has been targeted by the Democratic Party for exposing extensive government blacklists used to censor left-wing and right-wing critics. Given access to the internal traffic of Twitter by Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, he documented repeated cases where the FBI and other government agencies repeatedly suppressed news and commentary. The censored content was almost exclusively produced by those critical of the dominant narrative advanced by the Democratic Party and the old establishment wing of the Republican Party, which has joined forces with the Democrats. Threads that were censored include those from the Yellow Vest Movement, activists from the Occupy Movement, Global Revolution Live, negative stories about Joe Biden, reports on the Ukrainian energy company, Burisma, that paid Hunter Biden about $1 million a year while his father was vice president, positive stories about Venezuelan president Nicolas Maduro, reports about Ukrainian human rights abuses, and details of the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. The accounts were flagged and usually disappeared. The so-called, quote-unquote, moderation requests were sent by an entity called the Foreign Influence Task Force. The Foreign Influence Task Force is an FBI-led interagency task force that includes numerous government agencies, including Homeland Security, the CIA, the Pentagon, and the State Department. It flags what it considers objectionable content about two dozen social media companies, including Twitter, Facebook, Google, Pinterest, and Wikimedia. In March, Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger were called to testify before the select subcommittee on weaponization of the federal government. While Taibbi was testifying on March 9th, an IRS agent visited his house in New Jersey. Taibbi discovered that the IRS opened a case against him On the day, he published a Christmas Eve Twitter thread from a letter House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan sent to the IRS commissioner inquiring about Taibbi's case. It was a Saturday. It was Christmas Eve. Taibbi did not owe taxes. The case was four years old. All this suggests that the IRS case was politically motivated and the FBI was monitoring Taibbi. Taibbi ran into the buzzsaw of orchestrated character assassination when he testified. The Democratic members of the committee rarely let Taibbi speak. They delivered vicious and insulting diatribes, which were then broadcast on outlets such as MSNBC and CNN, part of the effort to further discredit him. The ranking committee member, Stacey Plaskett, sent Taibbi a letter accusing him of lying to Congress and threatened Taibbi with a five-year prison sentence. Joining me to discuss this wholesale censorship and the efforts by the ruling establishment, especially the Democratic Party, to discredit him and his work is Matt Taibbi. Matt, let's go back to December 24th, 2022. You're in the Park 55 Hotel in San Francisco, and explain what you're doing.
1: Well, I was putting together the, the final touches on a story uh, about um, – it was going to be called Twitter and Other Government Agencies. Uh, about a week and a half into the Twitter Files Project, we found a series of documents that uh, had come to Twitter through the uh, Foreign Influence Task Force. And it was basically just a pile of reports that came from various government agencies. Sometimes we could tell which ones they were, sometimes not. Um, but in essence, most of them were, were simply... Uh you know, a few paragraphs of, of uh text along with a gigantic uh Excel spreadsheet of account names. And they would say things like, you know, we assess that the following are uh related to Russia's Internet Research Agency or are are working to further anti-Ukraine objectives or whatever. And um, you know, we would check and see that. You know, sometimes uh, all of the accounts were gone. Sometimes it was a percentage of them. But uh, in most cases, there was some kind of action. And, uh, you know, this was an important story that we put out. I was very nervous about it. It included information about the CIA, uh, the, the DNI, uh, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI. And that's what I was preparing to do on, on Christmas Eve.
0: And we should be clear that before you made this release on December 24th, the FBI uh, had already denounced uh, your work on the Twitter files, uh, saying it was the product of conspiracy theorists, this is their quoting them, who fed the public, quote, misinformation, uh, whose sole purpose was discrediting the agency.
1: Right, yeah. In fact, I I even referenced uh, the FBI's, um, quote in the beginning of the thread, sort of sarcastically, I said, "You know, of course, my sole purpose isn't discrediting <laughs> the FBI. There are other agencies I want to discredit as well." Uh, and the idea of that was to, among other things, make the public aware that the FBI had commented on the story, um, you know, in, in a way that I think was intended to intimidate a little bit. Uh, in addition to not answering, you know, the questions that we sent. Um, but yes, they had already, they had already made it known that they were paying attention to the story and, you know, that was unnerving on certainly on one level. Let's talk about the
0: foreign influence task force. You, uh, you said you estimate that it has a staff of about 80. What is it? Who's on it? Um, to the extent that, you know, when was it set up and how does it work?
1: I don't know a whole lot about when it was set up. Um, other reporters have done some work on that. Lee Fong, who is one of the Twitter files reporters, um, had done some work on it. Um, there was an, he, he was where we got the number, uh, 80 uh, for, for staff for the FITF. As far as we could determine, it was mostly comprised of FBI, uh, Homeland Security and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, the FITF. Essentially, became like the throughway junction for uh, government requests for content moderation, and the system they worked out was basically uh, requests that came from the federal government would come through the FBI, and anything that came up through the states would come through DHS, and they had a a, a very specific means of doing that. They had a um, basically a communications platform they called Teleporter. Uh, it was like a one-way door. It was a little bit like uh, Mission Impossible. Like uh, the, the, there was a way to rig it so that once content went through there, it wouldn't last very long. Uh, it would delete after a period of time. But we we recovered some of the stuff that was in there. Uh, but that's what the FITF does. And what's interesting about it, there are two things that are interesting. One, it claims that it's only monitoring foreign uh, uh, material, but we found ample evidence of them looking even at the accounts of very small, you know, following, uh, American domestic, uh, account holders. Uh, and the other thing is these, these are not, uh, um, personnel that are trying to make cases. They're just monitoring social media. Uh, you know, it's, it's FBI. Uh, agents who, you know, they're they're not trying to put together something for trial. They're just watching. Well, not produce. they're not producing evidence. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're not compiling anything toward any kind of case. Yeah.
0: Which is exactly how in the McCarthy era, the FBI worked. They'd show up even at high schools. Elaine Schrecker's written about this with a list. There was no evidence. There was a list of names and all of those teachers were gone. And not only were they gone, they were blacklisted.
1: Well, right. And that, and that's one of the reasons why the church committee, you know, that one of the major reforms that came out of the church committee was a change in the whole idea of what, uh, the FBI would do. You know, they had to have some kind of predicate to initiate an investigation. Well, we don't have that anymore. They, they started to make that change, um, right around, you know, 2008 or so. Uh, but now it's firmly in, entrenched that the FBI, uh, is, essentially a counterintelligence operation that that has a criminal division to it. Um, It's it's in the uh, intelligence gathering business as much as it is the case making business.
0: So the FITF has an industry meeting. um, Explain what that is. And, And you had told me that at first it was monthly and then it was weekly as the 2020 election approached.
1: So the the moment that I think was the, um, the light bulb moment for a lot of us at uh, on the Twitter file store was when we first found emails that talked about um, what you referred to, the industry meeting. And uh, you would see um, something would be forwarded to one of the members of Twitter's trust and safety department and there would be an agenda uh, and it would, would come from the FITF, and you would see uh the agenda for what they call the industry meeting. And there would be all these people would be CC'd on the email. It would be you know, probably two dozen companies or more. Uh, and it would say something like OGA briefing, parentheses Ukraine. Right. So that would be at the top um and oga as you know is is usually a euphemism for either intelligence generally or the cia specifically um we had emails that showed that that the cia attended a couple of these meetings um that they asked to be there so we thought that that was pretty damning stuff because among other things not only th- did it show that the all of these companies were in regular contact with uh, federal enforcement agencies, but that there was this um, uh, rather elaborate anti-competitive situation going on uh, that, you know, I don't think anybody's even thought about that angle of it. Um, you know, the antitrust component of this where you have, uh, you know, 20 or 25 tech companies getting together and making secret agreements on what kind of content they're going to show the public. Um, yeah, I think that's very serious. And it was all basically in one email. So that that was what um that was the kind of thing where you you, you could show the public one picture and it would be it would be powerful that way.
0: Is there any indication that they were producing content?
1: Uh no, although we did have some indication uh, from a couple of sources and we kn- we were never able to really report this, but we heard it from enough people that I think it's worth mentioning that um there were some indications that the government had uh some input into the drafting of the terms of service of some of these companies all right so we we would see uh that the FBI was assigning lots of people to monitor uh different communications for possible violations of terms of service. And we even saw Twitter personnel complaining about that. Um, one of the lawyers is saying, my God, it's like they're, you know, uh, they're entering search terms looking for violations of our terms of service. So we know they were doing that, but there's a big question as to whether they were also working on the other end to help devise what those terms terms were and the implications of that are, are you know, obviously pretty serious. In
0: terms of service, that's what you're allowed to disseminate and what you can't.
1: Right. So, you know, Twitter has all sorts of policies about, you know, what it can disallow and why they can disallow it. Um, you know, they they have policies about harm, about, you know, expressing uh, hate towards a certain group. Um so that yeah, if if the government had any kind of role in, in helping draft policies like that for not just Twitter but for other platforms, that would be significant. We didn't we didn't find that kind of smoking gun, but we certainly heard it from some people.
0: Let's talk about the Select Subcommittee on Weaponization of the Federal Government. It's run by the Republicans. They were you were kind of crucified for cooperating uh by You know, the the establishment, I don't know, I don't want to call it liberal, whatever it is, media, Democratic, allied media. Talk about the committee and what happened there.
1: Well, so this is uh, Jim Jordan, um, the congressman from Ohio. He's the House uh, Judiciary Chair. He has a subcommittee, the Weaponization of Government Committee. And he invited Michael Schellenberger and me uh, to testify about the Twitter files and we were very happy to do it for one very big reason, which was that none of the stories we were doing, no matter how explosive they were, were getting picked up by national media. So we thought this was a unique opportunity to get, um, you know, in front of a, a big audience that would hear some of this stuff for the first time. And, uh, you know, I have to say, uh, Jim Jordan, I, I thought was very sincere in uh, his appreciation for the First Amendment. I think this is he's kind of a throwback to uh, the days when members of Congress could hate each other about certain issues, but agree about some pretty basic things. And um, and I think he, you know, he, he he really does believe in the First Amendment is my guess uh you know he he worked on a shield law for reporters too so uh but they brought us in and we testified and instead of engaging with uh with the material the democratic members one after the other just went after us personally and they didn't let us talk, uh, speak and it, this ended up actually being a, a big moment because audiences didn't get to hear about the twitter files but they saw the way we were being treated and it got them so angry that they went and educated themselves about what the material was. I, I thought it was a politically disastrous move by the Democrats. I, I didn't understand it.
0: Well, it w- let's talk about what they did. I mean, like Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I watched that. She didn't let you speak at all. I mean, you couldn't even get three words before she cut you off saying it's my time. And they, the, the smears and uh, insults were quite remarkable. I mean, be specific about what they did.
1: So the the ranking member, Plaskett, uh, called me a uh, so-called journalist, um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, Her line of questioning was devoted to the idea that um, I was a paid scribe of Elon Musk and that I was making uh, a fortune doing the Twitter file story and that that was my entire motivation uh, when she asked me about how much money I was making. And I told her truthfully that actually I didn't, I didn't think I'd actually made that much on it. Uh, she didn't. And she wouldn't let me answer that question. Uh, I was told by uh, another member from Texas uh, that I had had to take off my tinfoil hat and learn to uh appreciate the FBI's efforts to keep us all protected. Um Daniel Goldman, the member from New York, uh got mad at me when I said I couldn't agree or disagree with uh Robert Mueller's indictments of uh you know pur- purported GRU members. I, he's a lawyer. I thought he would he should know, but you you know indictments aren't something you can can agree or disagree with. Uh, When I said that, he got upset, shut me down and reclaimed his time again. But that was that was the pattern. They, they, you know, basically they were accusing us of being uh, un-American, financially motivated, uh, you know, basically paid operatives of Elon Musk and somehow connected to the Russians. And that was the entire theme of their questioning.
0: And then outlets like MSNBC, Mediasan followed up. On all of that, explain what they did.
1: Yeah, all well, all they did is they took those clips and that's how they built their stories about what, what happened in, in that hearing. And, you know, we weren't the only ones they did that to, by the way. The the Weaponization of Government Committee has had other hearings, you know, where they've had people who were, let's say, you know, FBI whistleblowers and it's the same formula every time. These people get accused of taking payoffs from somebody. Um, they get accused of being in league with Russia or in league with insurrectionists or uh, whatever it is. And then there's a little soundbite that gets produced, and that ends up being broadcast on MSNBC or CNN. And that's the entirety of the report, uh, which, you know, Chris, there, there was so much frustration on our part because... A lot of what the Twitter files were about, they weren't even partisan stories. That's that's what's so amazing about it. You know, I, I thought, I guess somewhat naively in retrospect, that at least some of the stuff we put out would be reported on or, or, or would attract some interest. Um, but it turned out not to be that way. It turned out to be, you know, we were the enemy for even bringing this up, which uh, was remarkable.
0: I want to talk about censorship because we're talking about blacklists. We're talking about wholesale censorship embraced by government agencies and the Democratic Party and the old, as I said, wing of the Republican Party that's defected from Trump, Liz Cheney types, who essentially have now been incorporated into the Democratic Party. But this is uh, a change for uh, the old ACLU, Anthony Lewis liberals. It's something new.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, old enough to have uh, been an intern and worked in the same office with uh, Nat Hentoff. If you uh, I know Nat. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, that was back in the day when, you know, the village voice was the Bible of American liberalism and, and Nat Hentoff's views on free speech. Uh, you know, he would pick out the, the smallest case of, uh, you know, somebody trying to, you know, trample on free speech speech rights and he would make the biggest deal out of it and you know that was a big thing in american intellectual life at the time we you know we, we did not truck anybody messing with the first amendment well, i
0: just i just want to interrupt because they they would defend people like now would defend right wing free speech like the famous case with the neo nazis marching through skokie illinois
1: right and 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 to to American liberalism back then, as you know, the, the the rationale behind that was not hard to understand. If you, if you don't protect the right of um, people to march in Skokie, the next thing that's going to happen is that every mayor in every small town in Alabama, Mississippi, and the panhandle of Florida is going to prevent the NAACP from marching. I mean, this stuff's not rocket science. It was really simple r- reasoning and uh but it's gone out of style it's it's there's been this massive public relations campaign that has told a whole generation of young people uh that you know counter speech and allowing you know certain kinds of people to talk doesn't work and deplatforming does and uh, people believe it and and this is be this is the rationale behind this new movement And they they see Donald Trump as the evidence um, that, you know, more stringent measures are needed. And it's provided the cover for this incredible, you know, sort of revolution in technological censorship that, you know, that we we found in the Twitter files.
0: I want to talk about Mehdi Hassan, who I have zero respect for. Um,
1: He's a good uh, interviewer, though.
0: No, he's a bully. I mean— You know, it's the classic technique. He seized on these incredibly minor errors. We've all made them. We used to run error boxes in the New York Times. No, you've made them. I've made them. We all make them. But they were really uh, almost irrelevant. I mean, you confused a timeline. You had a misplaced acronym. But then he blows this up into evidence that you've lied to Congress. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez seconds this accusation. And that's when the Plaskett sends this letter, um, uh, and and that's the f- the first step into trying to destroy. If you look at the pattern and, and the attacks on Julian Assange, it's the same. You uh, you essentially discredit their reporting, then you begin a sustained campaign of character assassination, and once they're isolated, the way Julian was. Uh, you can uh, pretty much do whatever you want to them. And I certainly see that. Uh, it hasn't gone as far, obviously, as it has with Julian. But I certainly see that pattern being played out against you.
1: Yeah, so I, I made a big mistake with Medi. I mean, I I had a beef with MSNBC for years because I used to be a regular guest on, on the channel. Um I I was the last person, I think, on MSNBC who was invited on, who expressed any kind of skepticism at all about the Russia case. And then even then it was quite mild. Uh, But after that, I wasn't invited back on. And um, I always thought that, you know, MSNBC owed it to its audience to uh, at least answer critics about, it's wrong reporting on the Russia story. So I thought it would have been hypocritical to refuse an invitation to come on uh, Mehdi's show. I did come on and I wasn't prepared. I was overconfident. I thought I had everything locked up. I thought the worst thing that could happen to me is that I, you know, sounds you know, a little bit stupid on air, but he found some errors and that that rattled me uh, on air. But the problem was... Um, he misunderstood what those errors meant. Uh he thought they were far more significant than they were. In fact, uh, you know, I, I basically confused the Center for American Security and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the latter being a part of the Homeland Security uh agency. And he um he thought that I was basically saying an intelligence agency was was involved with content moderation when it wasn't. In fact, both CIS and CISA were involved in this one program, and he didn't understand that. So he thought it was a really huge, significant, intentional error. It was actually a picayune, meaningless error. Uh, And But then he took the additional step of uh, trying to get Members of Congress interested in in prosecuting me for lying to Congress, and this it was at this point that you know I I tweeted at him and I said Manny, come on, all jokes aside now, like it, it's time to get serious. You're you're trying to put me in jail for this stuff, and you're wrong. And you know nothing. And I, uh, that was a real eye opener for me. I mean, I I, I get all spare and love and war, you know, even on on Twitter, everything's in bounds, but uh, this is no joke, you know, um, and. It, it, they really mean it i think that you know i think i think they really want to press this stuff as as, as far as they can
0: well you you've raised this but it's important about the national guard technology support staffer who posted documents online and then the response of the media which are like you i found just terrifying
1: so the, this is the so-called pentagon leaker story right where you have a, you know, a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman from Massachusetts, and God knows how he gets access to this kind of intelligence, but he does. Uh, he, and he's in a Discord room where he's playing Minecraft, which is a, um, a game I play with my kids. It's, and they're passing around some intelligence. And what's incredible about this is that the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Bellingcat, track down this, this person and essentially deliver him up to the authorities. Uh, and now they're doing stories based on the, the stuff that, that he was leaking. Now, can you ever remember Chris, um, journalists working to turn in essentially sources? Uh, it, it's a total violation of what uh, journalism is we're not on the side we're not part of the uh, the government's investigatory apparatus uh but they see themselves that way and and when they pair up with these organizations like Bellingcat which are you know sort of government funded what they call open source intelligence agencies um it's a totally new role for the media. And, you know, they they see themselves as doing the right thing by putting putting the right people uh, in the crosshairs of government.
0: Is this driven by fear of Trump? Would you say that's the engine?
1: You know, I would hope so, right? Because that's at least a reason. Uh, But I I worry sometimes that it's an, an even baser phenomenon than that, that this is... It's groupthink. It's um, yeah, it's careerism, um, and it's a new kind of political movement that I think is developing. Where the, there's a, a new sensation, I think, within the, the media business for sure, that I had not clued into uh, for a long time. But it's this belief that whatever we were doing before, when you know the the type of uh, approach that we were taking to reporting. No longer works. Uh, we can't just put stuff out there be, uh, and hope that the public makes the right decisions. We have to act uh, and make sure that they do the right thing with the information, which means that we have to have lockstep discipline about what we say. Um, we, we have to filter out, uh, things that we think the public can't handle and we have to exaggerate things that we think they need to know and. You know, this is a this is a new vision for how uh, information is disseminated. That you know, again, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts of it on it. But to me, it reminds me of something that you you would have seen in the Soviet Union in the, in the you know the late twenties or early thirties, or um, you know, or in other countries that you know have authoritarian uh, traditions.
0: Well, isn't it because their own credibility has been shredded?
1: Well, yes, yes, but that's. You're, it, to me, that that's exactly the wrong way to respond. To, well, of course,
0: but but that's the way they're responding. I mean, they're not trusted. I mean, that's not what's the, what's the approval rating for the press? Uh, it's probably in the single digits. Who knows? I mean, it's pretty low.
1: Well, they're probably looking up at Congress right now, right? So they're <laughs> just, you know, w- remarkable. You would think it's impossible. Uh, right, right. It, it's like the Woody Allen joke. You know, where they're a notch below child child molester at this point, um, but. You know, as as you know, the the only way to win back trust in media is to be straight with people and to own up to mistakes and and to you know look people in in, in the eye and say, we got this wrong. We're we're going to try to be uh, square with you the next time. They're not doing that. Instead, they're locking arms and saying, we are the only source of information. We we have legitimacy because we're credentialed, um, and. That gives us authority that other people lack, and we want you to discount any information you get from any other source, and they're going with that. I mean, I think you know as well as anybody else that this is a belief system that's become pervasive. Great. Thanks, Matt.
0: I want to thank The Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.